You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast in the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to elders, past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a strange start there. For some reason, I can't turn off the automatic. There we go. Yeah, All done. Yeah. yeah, there's so many knobs and buttons to look at. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens on a Monday when you uh, come in and you panel, but that's okay. We've got a pretty good show for you today. We do, Dean. So, uh, yeah, it's a great. I'm Judith and um, Dean on the panel, as we yes, <laughs> yes. just heard. Um, and uh, really want, want to thank Beyond Zero Emissions for that last show. It was great. And it's um, Monday, the 15th of April. Today it's going to be mostly sunny with a top of 25 and a minimum of 13. And then I think it's the last bit of summer that we're going to get. So tomorrow it's going to be 27. And Wednesday is going to be 27. It's going to be a balmy week, I think. Yeah, yeah we've yeah. got to get out and enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> so get your uh, bathers out before um, the... The chill. <laughs> I thought winter had come early, but, you know, we're pretty yeah. lucky here in Melbourne. Um, yeah, no, it was a glorious weekend, for oh, sure. Fantastic. Really lovely. Yeah, yeah, and I went to the march yesterday for refugees, and that was, um, yeah, a lot of, you know, I think over a thousand people came, and... Uh, Lots of energy, uh, and uh, you know, people are really wanting to see change, policy change in that area. And there were there were a lot of those around. They were all around Australia. The Palm Sunday um, refugee rallies. That's which right. Were on yesterday, yeah. yeah. And and I actually ran into some people from Ballarat who were there at Ballarat for refugees, and um, they're actually I think they have um, an event, a book event with Beirut Bertuni, who's going to be talking about okay. yeah, yeah, fantastic. no friend but the mountain. So, yeah, <laughs> there's that there title of the book yeah yeah fantastic uh, 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 yeah and today we've got um well. dr melissa slee from manish university there was a rally that they had um last wednesday uh, april the 10th at 12 which coincided with the union rally which was happening at the same time so she's from the nteu and what i thought we might do is just get a follow-up on the two important issues that they were, they were raising um and we'll have a chat to her at yes. 7.15? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, actually, especially what's happening to the professional staff. Mm. Yeah, we'll, mm. we'll hear about that. It seems to be an ongoing issue. It's been going on for nearly four or five years, and if it's not Monash, so she's talking about Monash now, but Victoria Uni over the last two years, yeah. casualisation of staff has been It, it has been going issue. on mm. a long time, like probably 15 years yeah. even, and uh, it's come to the crunch, I think. And, um, you know, I, we're going to have a bit of nostalgia 
On the show this morning after eight, we'll be speaking to uh, Associate Professor Melissa Kang, who you may not know as Melissa Kang, but you might know as the Dolly Doctor, if you if you were aware of Dolly at all, Dean. Oh, um, yes. You yes, were. She would were. be uh, one of those people who shaped Australian childhoods, I think. Um, yeah, well. Even though I was reading the Shoot magazine from the UK, Everyone knew about Dolly Doctor. Okay. <laughs> I think most of the boys would steal their sister's copy and have a quick look in there. Oh my God. And do you remember the sealed section? No, I didn't know there was a sealed section. Oh, By the time was. the boys got it, the whole thing was already <laughs> open. But by what you just told me, which is why this, you've just answered one of the questions, says can ask Melissa, was, uh, whether it was just young women or whether young men were also... Oh, women. no, I think a lot of young men secretly yeah. would, were yeah. reading it, yeah. yeah. So anyway, she's going to, she was a dolly doctor for 23 years, so she's got quite an insight into what young people were asking, you know, over a period of time. Mm. And uh, around that time, so, sorry to interject, yeah, go, uh, go. there was... Uh, I think around the mid '90s, a radio program with Dr. Sally Feelgood yes. then started. You know, which I sort of seemed that. to be the continuation and of the what, sex show. Yeah. There was yeah. a sex show. <laughs> yeah. Was, well, I mean, a lot of this was around uh, HIV mm. in Australia mm. and uh, ways of preventing uh, the spread of it. And, and young people were one of the groups that mm. everyone was interested in. So having you know better information. So yeah. So, so that's after eight. Uh, before that, we'll be speaking with Fiona. Armstrong, so kind of still on a, a health theme here. She's the executive director at the Climate and Health Alliance, and she, she's they're policy oriented, and we'll hear what kind of ideas they're promoting, and also about um, the green hospitals as well. So some great ideas mm. there. I think we touched on that a little bit with uh, Fergus Kinnard last week when he was talking really about the numbers, but there were some concerns raised um, by leading experts about the omission of a strategy to tackle climate change, yep, for which sure. involves health. Yes, indeed, yeah. And uh, then, you know, because it's Easter and coming up, and I don't know about you guys, but I think about chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? And, uh, and so we're going to, I wanted to find out more about fair trade chocolate and how we can buy our chocolate with them. Um, you know, knowing that it's been well sourced and farmers being looked after and, and just to get really more of the background about how that's all done. So we're going to speak to uh, Molly Harris Olson, who's the CEO of Fair Trade Australia New Zealand and has had a lot of experience working in the sustainability area as well. But first of all, we're going to go to, we're going to have some uh, desert reggae. <laughs> this is Jamu Kunura. The song, which means Grandfather's Country, by the Jindu Desert Band. And that was uh, the Jindu <laughs> Desert Band with... Uh, Jamuku Nura, and great, great way to start the morning. Yeah, beautiful song. Yeah. beautiful song. Um, I think uh, I was, we were just saying here in the studio that those um, it was quite unique to have two big protests in Melbourne last week. One was on Monday when we were on the show where animal rights activists shut down a major intersection at the corner of Flinders Street and Swanson Street. That's not my wording, the shutdown part, but it's interesting that that's the word that's been used, shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Wednesday, you know, we had people, uh, trade unionists gathering for the Change of Rules campaign where protests um, 
around Melbourne were really about the organisation seeing the government's inaction on job security and fair wages yes. being a big thing. But yeah. the, the reporting on both the rallies seemed to be at polar opposites, I think. Yeah, um, you mean public sympathy? Yeah. yeah or at yeah. least, at least um, a, particular, a particular kind of press. Mm. Yeah, mm. yes. Uh, um, we, we missed, we, uh, I did miss the, the animal rights activist one because we were in here, but the, the rhetoric that's been coming out is a lot of people saying, you know, if you want to protest for something like that, just, you know, it's okay to have your own opinion, but don't force it on me. A lot of meat eaters, you know, like it, mm. whereas with wages and jobs, People are just like, yeah, that involves me, regardless of whether they're white collar or blue collar. Yeah, well, yeah. interesting and interesting the differences, mm. the difference in the mm. way different groups reported it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then Sunday we had a, a, a quite a peaceful rally, which you mentioned will play a piece of that um, after eight, the Palm Sunday for Refugee Rally, which, you know, with thousands of people taken to the street, yeah, um, it sure. would have been fantastic to be in Melbourne as a visitor to see something like that. Where well, you were. know, it was interesting walking down, like we were walking down, the, the march went from State Library down to um, Flinders Street Station and then along into the park. Uh, as we were going down Swanson Street, there was one place that there was a pub upstairs and the balcony and all these people came out in the balcony and they were all had thumbs up and cheering and saying, go. And it felt like there was, from people even watching the bystanders, it felt like there was enormous support for that refugee rally. And uh, it was certainly... A good feeling both within the the rally and lots of music too. And there was a marching band and yeah, it was um, there was a good feeling. But obviously there was serious intent as well. And and people have just had enough of mm. this this really punitive policy here in Australia. And mm. that follows on to our next guest who will get on and uh, she'll be giving us an update on Monash University who voted to strike for 24 hours last Wednesday. Uh, Dr. Melissa Slee, who's the Victorian Division Secretary, will be joining us in just a moment. Now been announced. It's important that you're enrolled to vote and your details are up to date before 8pm Thursday. If you've recently turned 18, changed your name or address... Make sure you enrol or update your details online at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form from the post office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Thursday. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra. Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. Hi, I'm Mo Louie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. 
We're back on 855am with a little kiss there at the end. Oh. <laughs> au. Um, last Wednesday, the National Tertiary Education Union members at Monash University had a 24-hour strike uh, as part of their long campaign for a new enterprise agreement with negotiations having reached an impasse um, you know, there, there, there were two very important issues that the strike was called for. So to find out a little bit more about that, we are joined by the NTEU Victorian Division Secretary, Dr. Melissa Slee. Good morning, Melissa. Well, good morning. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. My pleasure. Um, in, in the studio here, we were talking about this ongoing um, issue in terms of uh, it, it, tertiary education staff members, what's been happening for... A very, very long time. You know, it was Victoria Uni a couple of years ago and then it was Latrobe Uni and now Monash Uni have these two very important issues that um, needed to have a strike called for. Can you give us a bit of an update as to, you know, what those two issues were first and foremost and why the negotiations have reached an impasse? Oh, that's right. Well, so what's happening in the sector, of course, is we've got a national round of enterprise bargaining. So as you Sort of, you listed all these campuses, you know, campus by campus, we're having to negotiate, uh, and over very similar issues. And speak to at Monash, as with most campuses actually, uh, the first one is that at Monash they want professional staff to be, uh, they want their power, uh, to, uh, have professional staff. So that's administrators and everyone who sort of, uh, keeps the university running. They want to be able to keep them working back till 8 p.m. at night with no overtime rates. So to treat 8pm as ordinary uh, hours of work, uh, uh, so for no, no compensation for them. Uh, and uh, they appear to be very determined on this one, and I'm actually surprised uh, because that's the money's there to be able to pay the staff uh, overtime. And, of course, um, you know, you were talking earlier about this massive rally in the city, 150,000 people at least marching in the streets, Mm. Uh, last Wednesday, and, and that major issue for the ACQ and for all trade unionists is penalty rates. Uh, and so it's kind of like, I'm not sure which block um, management are living under that they think we can kind of agree. Uh, whilst people are marching for penalty rates, we would trade ours off. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, it's we're just at loggerheads. Um, the NTU is simply saying no, <laughs> and, um, and it's really up to the as to how desperate they are to drive that through. Oh, excuse um, excuse then, me, uh, Melissa, it's Judith here. Just, okay. uh, just a quick question. You talk about the professional staff and you mentioned that you know they keep the university going. Can you just provide a little more information about what professional staff actually do? Because I think, that, as you say, they're, they're essential. Well, that's right. I think um, every, uh, you know, most students, of course, will know their lecturers, but what they may not see is behind the scenes uh, student administrators who uh, organise enrolment uh, and, uh, you know, try tables and answer queries on the front counter. Uh, and then there's uh, library staff, of course. Uh, there are also uh, uh, prof- professional staff on campus. And just um, the multitude of your know, finance. <laughs> yes. The multitude of, uh, of tasks uh, that professional staff Perform, and in fact, you know, uh, they're fifty percent of the workplace. Yeah, I mean, the, the young unsung heroes of university oh, life—they yeah. really do keep things going. Yeah, they really 
are, and the jobs are very challenging, actually, and increasingly high-skilled, which I don't think the universities quite appreciate um, how difficult those roles have become. Yes, indeed. And, Melissa, I guess, I guess it puts you in an impossible position where you cannot sign up for this agreement because essentially, you know, with over 75,000 casual academics in the university sector, it's like they're holding a, a gun for you to, ha- to ransom, essentially. Well, that's exactly right. So that's the second big issue. So the big, one big one is getting a special staff once back to 8 o'clock at night for no extra money, and the second one is... Uh, but they won't, uh, Monash Management won't give us any commitment for career opportunities for casual academics. Uh, and so uh, there's no way, again, as you say, that we could sign up to an agreement that offers nothing um, to, uh, to the next generation of academics and, and wants to have them continue on casual contracts. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, we're at such loggerheads <laughs> you know, we're on a point, I've never been quite uh, had such a profound sort of uh, gap between us. Really, uh, there's simply no way that the NT can sign up to the agreement in its current form. Um, so and, it, and it always gets tricky, um, you know, super tricky at this final stage. Where, I mean, I know you're not there yet, but where are you currently? And, and I guess what was some of the feedback you got from the rally on Wednesday? Well, I think uh, I think the we met with management the next day, which was kind of interesting. So uh, it was really great. The big rally on, in the city makes a huge difference um, to to the union's sort of confidence uh, and our feeling of, and, and also management were kind of like, oh, <laughs> well, that was impressive, wasn't it? Um, I, so I think where we're at right now is uh, following the big rally and the twenty four hour strike. Uh, management up until that time had been giving us just a flat no. Mm. Uh, and then it was kind of, uh, the, on the following day, just the first day, it was kind of like, oh, well, we might go back and have a think about that. <laughs> so I think we've kind of um, rallied them a little bit. Uh, uh, we continue to negotiate with them over the next uh, few weeks over Easter. Um, and uh, we're just really hopeful that They'll come back and at least discuss these issues with us. Um, uh, we've, the unions tried to kind of break the logjam by offering kind of <laughs> different sort of ways of, <laughs> of uh, you know, addressing these issues so that we're not kind of and trying to bridge that gap. Um, and we haven't had much luck yet, uh, but we're hopeful over the next few weeks that management will, um, you know, give their issues a second thought. Yes, and, and Melissa, I'm really interested in the impact the casualization of staff is having on the students and the student experience at university. Well, that's exactly right. I think students can tell when their when they're academics are on casual contracts. They just know. Uh, and I think it is, um, you know, a fairly profound um, uh, experience to have your, uh, have your lecturers on such poor uh, paying conditions. Um, the difficulty the union has is um, is that actually these casual academics are awesome, <laughs> and therefore it suits the sector just fine to have these uh, highly skilled uh, casual academics delivering great. 
course material, um, and the university doesn't want to have to pay for it. And, and um, I imagine and so, it has an effect on, like, students looking for a PhD supervisor, for example, where you're talking about, you know, four years um, in the process, wow, yes. and you have a student, uh, you have a, a lecturer who's got the expertise, but they're mm. casual, and there's no guarantee they'll be there to, to you know, for the four Especially years. Especially with no seed funding and things like that yeah. for fellowships. And yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, the issue, that's exactly right. Uh, what's happening is that, you know, things like a PhD supervision and master's supervision, uh, those tasks are falling on fewer and fewer continuing staff. Uh, you know, workload, which makes it really hard for them to continue to deliver the quality. And as you say, you know, uh, casual academics simply can't offer this, even though they could do it, you know, and be really developing their own skills uh, in offering it. But, uh, yeah, three or four years down the track, who knows where these individuals will be. Um, and then, of course, there's the other side of it, which is the PhD candidate is looking for a job themselves, hopefully, in the sector. Mm. Uh, and so if there's fewer and fewer continuing roles and to look for, they're losing a lot of talent. They're going to have to go somewhere else, and that's uh, a real shame. And in some cases overseas, I expect. Uh, indeed. Uh, well, this is a global sort of challenge as well, is that, you know, mm. yeah, I'm barely starting to think about uh, the you know, international implications of sectors uh, universities all around the world are getting increasingly stingy, you know. Mm. Uh, we need to push all of them uh, to have better employment practices, particularly the U.S. awful. Um, uh, we need to push here to raise the bar everywhere. And, and Melissa, uh, just so we, I mean, I think most of our listeners might understand this, you, you, you mentioned management and management. It's essentially now pretty much a business, you know, like it's not like it used to be before where the people who ran the university were probably involved in the university, isn't it? It makes it a bit difficult where where people uh, are just looking at the numbers. That's uh, that's a really profound difference. Um, yeah, it, it's really true. It's very hard to uh, draw management's attention when they're just so removed <laughs> from the day-to-day life of the campus. I uh, was saying it to a megaphone just the other, other day that uh, 1.3 million, oh no, she was more than that, this $10.3 million goes to just 23 senior managers. It's $10.3 million divided amongst 23 people. Mm. <laughs> They're yeah. extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, and in fact, Bonash as well is huge. It's a $2.4 billion enterprise. And I'm um, sure over the Easter break and school holidays, they're getting all that time off as well, making oh, the most of it. Oh, indeed, indeed. And uh, I get shocked uh, being sort of one of the senior negotiators at the NTU. Uh, so many of them spend so much time overseas. Mm. It's actually hard to get in to actually even see them to discuss the issues uh, that are so burning to our members. Uh, it's a big problem. I think the sector's going to have to be quite profoundly reformed uh, to draw those senior managers back down to where they should be, which is uh, managing the day-to-day lives, um, uh, day-to-day working at the university, which means looking after their staff a lot better. And, and I think the, 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 the message here then is, you know, 
We know that they're, 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 it was a pretty successful strike for those who made right. it um, last Wednesday. And the idea is if there are any casualised academics in the university sector at the moment, uh, to, to join the NTU um, and, and I guess, you know, tell their friends and colleagues about joining the union movement, which will give you strength in numbers. That's exactly right. In some ways, in the, in the kind of inverse way, it's a big opportunity for us to sort of push out to members, to non-members, people who haven't joined the union yet, and say, well, look, here are the issues, and, and the NTU is really the only organisation uh, taking on the big issues and trying to turn things around. So, yeah, exactly. Signing up to the union, whether you're casual or continuing, uh, we all need to be in this together to... Uh, to take on the big question of reforming the university sector. Well, Melissa, it's a big challenge, and um, yeah. as, as, as you mentioned, you know, there, there will be another meeting um, early May in the hope That's that right. you know you'll be in a position to present a full proposal, which is uh, for a fair and reasonable enterprise bargaining agreement. Um, That's we, right. We appreciate you joining on 3CR, and so if people want to, to I guess, get on board with your movement, where can they go to, or even become members, how can they do that? Oh, well, well we've got a Facebook page, oh gosh, I don't even know what it's called, just look up into <laughs> you on Facebook and you'll find us for sure, um, and our website, uh, you can sign up, au forward slash join, uh, sign up and um, and get involved, because as you say, yeah, we've got a big meeting at Monash uh, in early May, where we'll be deciding whether we need to take more action uh, or accept you know, hopefully a much better deal. And, and I think what's important too is that people might not necessarily have to attend any of those meetings because you will be then able to, you know, um, once they sign up, send them information about what's happening to, oh. to be, you know, because it might be somebody okay. from Melbourne Uni, it might be somebody from Monash, sorry, from Victoria exactly. Uni, and see what the process is like because it might very well happen to them in the next, you well, know, six months indeed. or so. I, I feel like um, our actual NTU members, you know, they know everything that's going on, um, absolutely everything that's going on in the sector, and non-members know very little, uh, you know, so it's a big challenge for us. We've got to sign people up because there are, there are members who are kept informed uh, of what's going on. Well, thank you very much, Melissa, and uh, enjoy your morning. We appreciate you joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was the NTEU Victorian Division Secretary, Dr Melissa Slee, just giving us an update on the strike that they had on Wednesday as part of the big uh, Change the Rules rally. Hey, Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary, the 26th to the 29th of April. The inaugural Biraranga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations and even virtual reality. Now head to www.biraranga.world That's B-I-R-R-A-R-A-N-G-G-A.world and book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.
And that was the amazing Dan Sultan with Magnetic, and he certainly is magnetic. What, what a great song. Um, now, I don't know about, um, about you, Dean, but, um, do you, well, we've already talked about it, but you nodded, um, in, you know, very, very, uh, enthusiastically, emphatically when I mentioned chocolate and Easter mm, together. So yeah. you're a chocolate person. I am. You it's are. Probably my, my vice. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to say they were big. I mean, Easter egg hunts were big in our family. Mm. That was, the, that was the big Easter thing. And, uh, of course, there's chocolate rabbits, and uh, you can get the very Australian chocolate bilby, oh. uh, which is about, you know, an endangered uh, animal. Yeah. So there's, there's lots. There's obviously lots around chocolate. But cocoa is produced in some of the world's poorest countries, and often it's based on child labor and causes great environmental damage. Um, the, the farmers are not well uh, rewarded for their work, all those things. So lots of shoppers are now looking increasingly for um, ethically certified chocolate. And in Australia, the three principal certification bodies are UTZ, Rainforest Alliance, and Fair Trade. So I decided to um, find out more about Fair Trade and how it works, and I spoke to Molly Harris Olson. She's the CEO of Fair Trade Australia and New Zealand. And she spoke with me about how the fair trade process works and began by explaining the difference between fair trade, uh, two words, as a concept, and uh, fair trade, which is the organization she works for, all one word. The concept of of fair trade, two words, um, has been around for a long, long time. I mean, even back in the slave days 300 years ago, when Quakers would refuse to eat sugar in their coffee, fair trade itself was founded nearly 30 years ago as a federation of lots of organizations around the world. It actually just changes the rules of the trading game. It means that the farmers get a fair price. They get a minimum price, which ensures the cost of production and we're working towards closer to a living wage in a number of these commodities where the wages are just hopelessly low. And in the fair trade trading system, they also get a premium. And that premium is to be decided democratically by the whole community. And that is what gets invested in schools and hospitals and other things that the communities need for their development. It's about 108 million euros every year now that are going into these communities. And how would that translate into Australian dollars? Euros, it's all nearly double, but it's quite significant because the farmers are required to use democratic processes that are well documented to decide how they're going to spend that premium. And fair trade audits that they've had the public meetings, that the women and all of the people were able to vote, that it was minuted, and that they spent the money on what they agreed they were going to spend the money on. We don't ever tell them what they should spend the money on. Sometimes they do ask for some support and guidance on productivity and quality if they're trying to increase the price of their commodity or other things. And we always will provide whatever support they need. But basically, we leave it in their hands to choose what they're going to do and how they're going to design their future. We feel that that's really important because we won't always be there. You know, these communities need to be able to take charge for themselves and have control of their own futures. You said you have standards. What are those standards? Well, they are right across everything from productivity and quality in the farmers, from governance in the farmers, from the avoidance and protection of health and safety from chemicals, right through to how the traders 
disclose their contracts to make sure that they are paying the minimum price and the premium. So we audit the traders to ensure that they're playing a fair game. Uh, right into the companies who are licensees who will buy the products, they will pay the minimum price and the premium and invest in those supply chains. So uh, when I was chair of the international board, we changed the constitution to make the farmers and workers in the fair trade system half owners of the whole global system of fair trade. They're half of the global board, they're half of the general assembly, and every critical decision that fair trade makes is made by the farmers and workers that this whole global trading system is designed to support. We don't actually buy or sell or manufacture anything. We have set up a structure to create trust in a trading system that empowers the farmers to get a fair price for their end of the bargain. Do you provide the label? Oh, yes. So the label is that critical trust flag, the beautiful blue and green yin-yang sort of symbol. If you see it on a product, you know that all of those fair trade standards across all of these important issues are being adhered to. And things like cocoa, where there are really high instances of child labor, we do unannounced audits and we have a very high and very strict level of ensuring that no fair trade cooperative is using any child labor. And any cocoa cooperative who is found to have child labor are suspended and can be deregistered. The standards you set around climate change and participation of women doesn't happen overnight. You're dealing with cultures. You're dealing with long traditions in some of the countries you're working in. Mm. So have there mm. been some challenges in meeting those standards? Many, many challenges. The issue of gender has been one that's been extremely difficult over the years. But the really powerful thing about fair trade is that that over 100 million euros every year in premium monies that go into these communities, they cannot use or access that money unless they can demonstrate that not only are women getting equal access to roles and responsibilities and positions within these cooperatives, they have to have plans for any disadvantaged group in the community. So if there are also disabled community members or others, there has to be a plan on how they're going to enable and empower them to participate in the fair trade uh, cooperative governance. With Easter coming, we're particularly interested in cocoa production and chocolate. Tell me which countries uh, you're involved with in cocoa production. The vast majority of cocoa actually does come from uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. And in fact, in 2018, the global volumes of fair trade cocoa sold from Cote d'Ivoire grew by 57%. So we're really seeing major changes in the way cocoa is grown. And this is so important because most of the cocoa outside of fair trade certified sources actually came from primary forests and is responsible for a lot of forest destruction in areas like West Africa. So one of the things that you're doing when you buy fair trade chocolate is not only helping the people and helping the children ensure they're in school, but you're also uh, protecting against deforestation and climate change. And fair trade has a very comprehensive approach to trying to support them to be sustainable in the overall sense of the word. Are there any stories that stand out for you over the years you've been involved? Look, there are so many profound stories. In, in Coapa Coco, which is one of our cocoa cooperatives in West Africa, we brought out a couple of farmers. One was a very elderly cocoa farmer. Most farmers in cocoa in West Africa and around the world are over 50. And we brought out one older cocoa farmer who'd been doing it all her life. And we brought out um, the daughter of one of the other cocoa farmers who was about 25. It was so interesting to see how much just in that one generational change things had changed for these farmers. The, the younger woman had a university education. She was an accountant. She worked for the local Coapococo cooperative as an auditor. So in Coapococo, whereas 25 years ago, women had no 
leadership roles in any of the governance. Now every major role from the local cooperative up to the regional and up to the national cooperatives are all chaired by women. And that is uh, an incredible achievement. And I was all, and if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking to uh, Molly Harris Olson. She's the CEO of Fair Trade Australia and New Zealand. And uh, I did ask her, I was curious to find out how fair trade was viewed by other producers who, who weren't involved in fair trade. We've been at it very diligently for nearly 30 years now. And I think even some of the most predatory traders and companies in the world see that we are providing a long-term benefit to the supply chains. I mean, the reality is that with cocoa farmers' average age over 50, there is not going to be cocoa supply chains in the next 30 years if we don't look after these farmers and pay them a reasonable and fair price. So most business leaders and most traders are starting to recognize that what fair trade has done to transform trade is actually vital to the long-term sustainability of their business. So even the ones who don't want to pay the minimum price and the premium are hard-pressed to criticize it. There's a lot of schemes out there that are what we call self-certification. We believe that it's extremely important that consumers be savvy and aware that unless it's an independent certification like fair trade, that it's not nearly as trustworthy, particularly if it's a large company's self-certification. And there are many, many, we call it fair washing, actually, uh, where either companies or others will try to procure the benefits of fair trade without actually doing any of the work. And those are the things to watch out for, really. How do you achieve the independence in fair trade? Well, we have a completely independent auditor. Uh, it's a company called Flow certification, and they are the ones that do all of the auditing completely separate to fair trade across the entire supply chain. So they audit that the farmers are doing the proper thing by the governance, that the traders and the companies are all doing the proper thing according to the standards, and they're the ones who delist and, and suspend um, and ultimately decertify companies, traders, or producers that are not adhering to the standards. So they operate as a completely independent company, and they are really respected worldwide. We actually had to create them uh, 30 years ago because there were no auditing companies in those days that would audit against these kinds of standards. And now one of only two auditing companies that will audit gender standards across the Fortune 500 companies. So there's a gender certification called EDGE, and flow certification is one of the only two in the world companies that can audit across that standard. They do a lot of auditing across climate change standards and other environmental standards. It's a really important thing to have that independence. And uh, that's uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Molly, Molly Harris Olson, who's the CEO of Fair Trade Australia New Zealand. And I went fossicking around to find out even more information because I, I became fascinated speaking with Molly. And honestly, there is so much uh, information around. I found a couple of articles in The Guardian just uh, published just a month ago. Uh, where the um, author went and visited uh, Ghana and uh, Cote d'Ivoire and uh, met some of the traders. But what, what I found even more fascinating was two articles that were published la just last month in a journal that seemed like it was a journal for the food industry. It was called um, Food Ingredients First. And it announced that a large group of chocolate producers have made an agreement with the governments of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire to develop an action plan, that's the, the, those are the words, to combat deforestation. And uh, 
They also say they're going to look after farmers, ban child labor, on and on. Now, what I found really interesting was some of the companies involved in this are companies that don't actually have a great human rights or environmental record. So I'm kind of interested about why this sudden change um, among some of these companies and where that's all going. So do they see a market for ethical products? Um, So I I want to find, will they have, you know, independent uh, audits? I think there's a lot. I mean, obviously this has just been announced, but I think definitely something to keep an eye on. And big thank you um, to Molly Harris-Olson for coming on the show. I know that she's pretty busy. And um, for you, if you're going to go out and be buying chocolate, I did check around some of the supermarkets, and certainly I could find the UTZ mark, Rainforest Alliance, and Fair Trade marks on the wrapper of the chocolate. And um, you can also go to the Fair Trade website and find out more about where you can go to get it. Of course, Oxfam shops are always in that mix as well. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And we move from chocolate to another area of health. And uh, we're going to speak to Fiona Armstrong, who's the uh, founder and executive director of the Climate and Health Alliance. Uh, she's a fa- she founded it 10 years ago, and uh, she joins us on the phone now. So welcome, welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, Fiona. Thank you, Judith. Thanks for having me. Uh, and, uh, you know, we spoke to you, I think it was over a year ago now, um, you know, about your organization, the kinds of things you're doing. But I'm wondering, what inspired you to start the Climate and Health Alliance? Oh, gosh. Well, I guess with my growing realization about the health impacts of climate change and the fact that they were not being uh, recognized by policymakers, um, nor the health sector, really, who are uh, responsible for caring for our most vulnerable people and providing services in the event of illness in relation to climate impacts. So we've been working to raise awareness among policymakers and the general public ever since. So I'm pleased to say that, um, you know, climate policy in this space is slow, but we're seeing some really pleasing um, progress at um, a state and local level and um, and have the opportunity of progressing it at the federal level as well. So what what are some of the things that you feel have, have been achieved over the last 10 years? Well, I guess just, I mean, looking at what's happened most recently in Western Australia. So there's been a um, sustainable health review there, which began by looking really at the economic sustainability of the healthcare sector. But thanks to a lot of kind of hard work from advocates and people in the health system, um, the risks to health from climate change are being recognised in that review and are now part of the 
um, thinking around guiding policy initiatives in WA. So, so what, what sort? Sorry to interrupt, but you know, what sort of uh, health risks are, are you talking about? Or yeah. Yeah, so there's many really. I mean, there's a lot related to heat, of course. So that's one of the things that we see um, in Australia most significantly in that's linked to climate change. So the much longer, much more extreme and more frequent heat waves really take a toll on the population. So particularly on people who are elderly, but babies, athletes, people who are working outdoors, those with chronic illness. And we're seeing a, a, a big spike, obviously, with every summer hotter than the last. And um, even now in North Queensland, after one of the hottest summers ever, um, as late as April, Queensland hospitals are seeing um, a massive increase in presentations and ambulance call-ups. And it's thought that um, there's potentially a link to that really sustained heat wave that's taken its toll on vulnerable people um, over a longer time. So, yes, indeed. And uh, I know also you're doing work with hospitals. I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about the Global Green and Healthy Hospitals Network. Sure. So that's an initiative that was founded by our international partner in 2012, and we um, are the founders of the network in Australia and New Zealand. And since 2012, that network has grown to um, around 60 health systems and networks and institutions that are part of the network across Australia and New Zealand, which is representing about a 1,000 hospitals and health services. So that, that's, so that's a that, lot. <laughs> that's... It's, a, it's a lot. It's, a, it's almost half of the um, district health boards in New Zealand, and we've now got members in most states and territories and, and some national networks like St Vincent's Health Australia and Uniting Care Community, um, there's a lot of large networks that are part of it. And there's also a huge amount of leadership from hospitals and health services in Australia in this space, winning global awards for their contributions around emissions reductions, um, climate resilience and leadership generally on moving towards low-carbon health care. And what, what can ho- hospitals actually do? Uh, to be green and healthy, like you know, what what does that look like from the point of view of a, a hospital user or you know, or an administrator? Like, are there some specific things that they're doing? Yeah, so there's a lot. I mean, the um, Global Green Healthy Hospitals Network has a, a framework, what's called the GGHH um, agenda, and that's based around ten goals. So there's uh, leadership, energy, waste, water, buildings, transport. Uh, pharmaceuticals, procurement, chemicals, I think food. I think I've got them all right. So Yeah, well, the, the, those are a lot of things. Let's just that, take one that, of them, one of them <laughs> and explain. So in energy, for example, lots of um, hospitals are taking advantage of the low-hanging fruit that is energy efficiency and um, introducing light sensors, changing their light bulbs, um, changing behavioral practices around saving energy. So there's potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars to be saved from um, hospital bills because electricity is a really big item. Um, In relation to food, we're seeing hospitals um, working on food waste, so investing in um, food digesters so they're able to turn their food waste into compost that they can share with farms. 
Um, they're working on reducing their chemicals and that has a really big impact on the health workforce who have been um, exposed over you know, many decades to quite toxic chemicals um, that have an impact on their own health. So it's looking at minimising chemicals both in the processing of instruments um, but also in green cleaning. So, mm. um, and, and, you know, with, with zero, um, impact on infection rates, as in, you know, there's, there's no change in terms of moving away from those more co- toxic chemicals to, um, more neutral and less toxic ones. So, um, infection control, you know, there's no infection control concerns around that. So, um, so there's a lot going on, really. And, and Fiona, um, I guess given the overall poor state of progress on climate change and health in Australia, do you think it's, um, especially in that sort of uh, tech side, or um, I guess we've got the, the, the technical know-how, is it a slow transition to things like renewables and low-carbon electricity generation for hospitals and other organisations in this country? Well, that's why this kind of practical work and the policy work really need to go side by side. Mm. So there are some barriers in place um, in the health sector that prevent hospitals being able to purchase green electricity, for example, because all of their electricity is um, purchased, all the public hospital um, electricity is purchased for them on behalf of the government and they pay extraordinarily low rates for coal-fired power. So um, we need to shift those regulations in order for hospitals to have the flexibility and to make a choice because even if they were to cover their entire, um, you know, all of their infrastructure with solar panels, they'd still only be able to generate around 10% of electricity. So we need to be able to provide um, flexibility for hospitals to be um, purchasing green power off-site, for example. So there are, we know there are hospitals that would be willing to invest in solar farms off-site, but they're actually prevented from importing that electricity um, for use in their own site. And, so and, we, and we then need, obviously, a, a, I guess, a, a detailed understanding as well of some of the um, impacts that, that are happening, especially, you know, in terms of the suite of health and wellbeing related responses to the impacts of climate change. Well, that's right. So, you know, we need a much more information and data about a whole range of things, both about how the health system itself is performing um, in relation to energy consumption and climate resilience. Um, where, I mean, there's some very broad brushwork being done in that space by some of our colleagues who found that the health sector is responsible for 7% of national emissions. So this is a really significant chunk of our national emissions profile. It's more than waste and it's more than industrial processes. And yet, yet it's rarely referred to in terms of the suite of policies and the sectors that we need to support to transition. And then there's understanding, you know, the vulnerability around people um, people's um, exposure to climate-related um, health risks. So I talked about heat waves before. I mean, that's just one. There's there's a whole lot of heat-related air pollution health outcomes. So as the um, temperatures get hotter, that actually worsens the risk of air pollution, causes more um, ground-level ozone, which is a respiratory irritant and, and causes respiratory illness. 
Then there's climate-sensitive infectious diseases, and we've mm. seen things like the recent Townsville floods. There's been an outbreak of meliodosis, which is a soil bacteria which is, um, you know, released in the floodwaters and, and floating around and has led to around 10 people being admitted to intensive care and at least one person dying. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously the injuries and deaths that are due to floods and storms and um, and bushfires that happen directly. So, yeah, so, so, so much to know and understand on this issue. And it's great that uh, the Climate and Health Alliance is bringing uh, attention to these things. Uh, I'm wondering uh, if you're going to be campaigning during the current coming election and uh, what kinds of things you'll be looking to achieve. Yes, so we've been doing a lot of work on policy and over the last couple of years we've really decided to take um, responsibility for helping to fill that gap in policy in Australia. So we've worked with healthcare stakeholders and really we have health experts as part of and connected to our network who know more about this topic than anybody else. And so we've developed a framework for policy and um, that we're calling a framework for a national strategy on climate, health and wellbeing. And that is intended to help to help guide governments to develop policy on the topic. It's based around seven policy areas. Um, we're seeing a really pleasing uptake of that. So the Queensland government have drawn on that. And in fact, they asked us to develop um, their first climate and health strategy. So that's the first um, in Australia for a state to develop their own climate and health framework. Uh, Western Australia, as I mentioned, were demonstrating some leadership on this. They've announced an inquiry into the health impacts of climate change, but it's their intention to then develop a framework around climate change and health. Um, well, the, it sounds... At, yeah. at the federal level, um, as the uh, Australian Labor Party has committed to develop, uh, implement a national climate change and health strategy if elected to government. Wow, so we're, we're that's exciting. It's very exciting. So we're working very hard on encouraging our network to meet with as many candidates as possible, ask them to support this national climate and health strategy so that when um, when we in our next parliament, we have as many MPs as possible that are committed to this approach. Well, Fiona Armstrong, this sounds like great progress from 10 years ago when you started. the. And I know one doesn't start something all by oneself, so, but uh, I think you were initiator for sure. So when the Climate There's and Health Alliance... involved. Yeah. Climate and Health Alliance started, it sounds like you're, you're making um, great progress and, and getting in touch with candidates. Now, people may want to... If people want to uh, hear more about what you're doing and what you're wanting to achieve, can they go to your website? Is all the information there? They can. So that's www.caha.org.au. But they may also wish to Google the Our Climate, Our Health campaign, which is our campaign around a national policy roadmap that we hope we'll see in the next term of Parliament. Yes, and if uh, health professionals uh, are wanting to get involved, obviously this is a really important site for them to visit. Fiona, thank you so much for coming on. It was kind of short notice. I w- I've tried to get you on Friday, and I was in a, unfortunately in a place where the, the connection kept jumping in and out. So, But we no did problem. it. So Thanks, it's been, Fiona. <laughs> yeah, it's been Pleasure. great. Yeah. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that was uh, Fiona Armstrong. Um, who is from the Climate and Health Alliance uh, Coalition. I actually meant to ask if, you know, for people who are not 
aware of what climate and health and how they go together, um, they could have gone to what we discussed in December, which was the MJA Lancet countdown oh, on yes, health and climate yes, action. For sure. You know? Yeah, whether yeah. she would recommend people reading that report yeah. and getting an understanding. Well, there's lots of great information on their website. And mm. what's very interesting is the Lancet has actually recognized the Climate and Health Alliance in Australia as a, as a leader and I think one of the first ones in, in the world. So it has been now taken up uh, in other countries as well. So, yeah, they do have a connection with the Lancet. Mm. Mm. So coming up next, Dolly Doctor. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. And we're now joined on the phone by Associate Professor Melissa Kang from the University of Technology, Sydney. She's a professor in public health, but her specialty is adolescent health. And back in the 90s, uh, 1990s, she was invited to become the Dolly Doctor and answer young people's questions about health. Welcome to Monday Breakfast, Melissa. Thank you. Good morning, Judith and Dean. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I have to tell you, there was a bit of excitement, particularly from Dean, <laughs> oh, really? here here in the yeah. studio early yeah. on when I, I, I remember, said you I remember wearing my hypercolour T-shirt and hiding in yeah. the back room somewhere reading, Dolly. <laughs> I, love hearing, I love hearing stories from men about this because they do come out of the woodwork eventually. Oh, well, you know, no one's going to judge me now. I'm way past that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know that we're ever way past that day. Yeah, right. Anyway, but Melissa, for people who don't know what Dolly was, yes. can you explain a bit about Dolly Magazine? Sure. Dolly Magazine was the first magazine targeting teenage girls in Australia. And it actually had the monopoly for about the first 20 or so years. It launched in 1970. So just so everyone knows, I was still a child then. <laughs> I wasn't writing the ma- for the magazine at that stage. So it was actually it predated uh, perhaps more well-known titles such as Cleo. Um, it, it was actually one of the very first uh, girls' magazines in the country. And uh, it, was very, it was very popular. It obviously had the highest circulation for a long, long time until its competitor arrived on the scene during the 1990s. And it always had a question and answer section called Dolly Doctor. And it, those questions were always answered by a real medical practitioner, usually a GP. And I was lucky enough, just happened to be in the right place at the right time in 1993 when the GP who had been answering those questions for about a year said that she felt she'd had enough. And uh, would I be interested in taking over? So, and did you grab? Did you grab the opportunity? (laughs) (laughs) I certainly did, because at that stage I was still relatively early in my medical career, but very much wanting to work with young people. 
and had found employment and jobs and, and you know, training programs that allowed me to do that. So and, and there weren't lots of them at that time. I mean, they, they bege- exactly. were beginning to emerge in the early 90s. Yes, yeah. yes. The, the specialty within medicine, at least, was still fairly young. And mostly you had to go through a, a, a specialist training program as a pediatrician first. But I was actually doing general practice training. And I think actually you reach a, you know, reach a lot more people in primary care, and, and that's where most young mm. people go. So it was it was just so, so I was felt so lucky to be able to work as a doctor in this area as well as then take on uh, the dolly doctor for what ended up being over twenty years. <laughs> yes, and look, I'm I'm imagining you receiving these big bags of mail uh, each mm. month. <laughs> <laughs> How did it work? How did the questions get to you? Yes. Look, very much it was controlled by the Dolly magazine office and the the editorial team. I had very little to do with the selection of questions to be answered, mainly because of logistics. I was not on the payroll or or, um, an employee of the publisher. I was like a contractor, I suppose. And so their editorial team went through the letters, which back in the 1990s were still mailed in with envelopes and stamps and handwritten usually. And they would receive several hundred, if not up to a thousand, every 12 months. And they would have someone designated in the office who would read read a selection of them or read all of them and choose some for me to answer. So that's how it worked. And then when email kicked in, the number of emails that came in every month exponentially increased to the thousands. Wow, and that's amazing. So again, it was unmanageable. I think probably even for their staff to read every single one. Um, and, and they would select them for me to answer. And, and Melissa, obviously with, you mentioned emails and then that lost art of letter writing yes, and also yes. the editors. What, what in your mind changed over the decades? Because, I mean, obviously the person that was reading them might not mm. have kept that job for a long time. So whoever was selecting the content might have had diff- yes. different ideas of what was good and what was not. Exactly. And, in fact, what happened was probably in about my second year, I started to feel that the, the questions I was being asked to answer were very similar, very same thing, you know, mm. every month. And I actually requested to read a selection of, of letters, however many they wanted to send me. And they sent me about 300 <laughs> so that they just stored over a few months. And so that was my first taste of actually this is incredible material for helping us understand what's in the mind of young adolescent girls. And I turned that into ongoing research really to, to help me understand how to answer questions, really the breadth and depth of what uh, young girls were agonising about. And for a period of time, probably about six months, they did let me choose the questions to be answered. And then that staff member who had been sending them to me actually left. The turnover of staff in Dolly Magazine was very high. Mm. And um, it went back to a kind of a, a bit more of a diverse range of questions, and I was happy then to leave it. Yes. Uh, Melissa, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, how did it feel to actually receive those, mm-hmm. the letters, like to hold them in your hand, to see yeah. the writing of the young people who sent them in? How did it feel? Well, it's incredibly 
you know, tangible and it's very real. And I actually still have several hundred in a box at home because the magazine let me keep them. They just sent them to me. Mm. And sometimes they were actually even addressed to me, you know, Dear Dr. Melissa, because that's how I appeared in the magazine. And it was incredibly... um, It's a feeling you can't quite describe because I know they didn't really know me and I certainly don't know them. They were mostly anonymous. But but here were these uh, tangible letters that someone had taken the trouble of writing and putting in an envelope and putting a stamp on it and posting to somebody that they mm-hmm. that they trusted. And what so, what did what was the writing like? Like what age group did you feel uh, it represented? Was it like middle class young women? Were there young women who were less articulate? Were there some from very young women? What what did I it feel like? Say mostly they didn't state their age, um, but the, I would say based on the kinds of questions, we were looking at maybe 11 to 15-year-olds. Sometimes they were older and they would say, I'm 17 or I'm 18. But most of them were in that young to middle adolescent age group. Some of them didn't, um, you know, that they were certainly literate enough to write, but I would say there was a range of, of backgrounds. It's hard to say in terms of how they express themselves or, or perhaps their grammar or spelling. Sometimes they would say that they were from a particular uh, cultural background, but, but often it was very hard to tell. And, and you mentioned that people, some people would write, Dear Dr Melissa, isn't it yes. amazing how there was a sense of a personal relationship with you, even though they'd yes. never met you, exactly. to tell you things that they wouldn't tell their parents? Exactly. I think that's, and that was a trust in the magazine, I think, and, and in the person that they trusted the magazine provided a credible person behind those answers. And I think that that's what I'm hearing now that the magazine's closed from women in their, perhaps their 30s and older about how much they trusted. <laughs> and I did too, you know, I was an adolescent reading mm. Dolly magazine, so very much trusted that what we were reading was actually authoritative and credible and, and likely to be fairly true. And what did they want to know about? We're all, this is what we're all <laughs> waiting to hear. Yes, what did they yes. ask about? Well, look, in some ways it's all fairly ordinary, um, but I would say if you could, and I have classified them, I have categorized them over the years, mostly about their changing bodies, mm. but the feelings that accompany that and the, the changing nature of their relationships with parents, with peers and friends, and of course, with romantic interests. And the idea so, that there is normal and not normal. Yes. Yes. When I'm, when I'm asked what's the most common question, I say, well, am I normal is the most common, or is this normal? Uh, whatever it is that they're asking about. And I think it really affirms for me our theoretical understanding of adolescent development and how you do become very focused on yourself and wondering if everything you're feeling and experiencing is actually normal compared to peers. And that was an incredibly powerful theme throughout many of the questions, regardless of what the actual topic was, the, the health topic they were asking about. And was there anything that frightened you? Did you get any letter that you thought, oh my God, this person really needs some help? Mm. Yeah, look, I think that that certainly did happen. The the questions that got published tended to be ones that were, um, you know, short short enough because they didn't edit them at all other than spelling mistakes. Um, 
So they couldn't publish really long questions. And sometimes, because I got to see these letters and, and emails, um, some, sometimes they were very long ones expressing some degree of distress. Now, I, when I did an analysis of emails in the, about 10 years ago now, um, I was surprised how few there were that were disclosing something really serious like abuse. And I think that's because there were other vehicles for adolescents experiencing uh, significant distress in their life, such as Kids Helpline and, and other avenues like that. So there weren't really that many um, that were disclosing something really terrible. But there were certainly concerns about mental health, um, about perhaps the... Sometimes I felt concerned about the lack of knowledge about bodies and um, access to services and, you know, taking risks with um, sexual relationships and things like that. So I think there was always a little bit of potential concern with some of the questions, but nothing really. Um, I think where a young person was actually in crisis, that this was not the place they came to, which was appropriate. Yes, and that what there was a sealed section, wasn't there, of Dolly? Yes, and, well, and Dean didn't know what it was earlier. Yeah. No, it was already open by then, but um, yeah, I never knew right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it actually went through a range of iterations, the Dolly Doctor section. So when I first started writing for it, it wasn't sealed, actually. And it was probably only two or three pages. So I wrote sort of medical-type answers. And then they had a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, who answered relationship-type questions and sometimes sexual relationship-type questions. And then over the years, you know, they... um expanded the section to be multiple pages and they made it sealed. I see. <laughs> I, I was wondering if it was just a, a marketing <laughs> exactly. ploy. Exactly. Well, I think that's, I think that's right. And, um, and then it probably went away. I think over the years that I wrote for the column, there were probably sealed sections twice and, and unsealed sections twice, I think, from memory. And they had a range of experts, you know, writing answers or writing, uh, consulting on feature articles. So I by no means was the only Dolly mm. doctor. The whole section dealt with, um, you know, a range of things. And sometimes if they had a lot of recurring themes in the emails that came in, for example, take something like sexual abuse or incest, um, if they felt that, that had, they had questions like that trickling in every month, they would do a feature article on it or something like suicide or, or depression and they would do a feature article on it and they would get a range of experts to comment or um, to help them. So I think they were quite responsive to the questions that their readers were sending in and, and felt a sense of responsibility towards their readership. And I did admire that actually because the rest of the magazine was you know, not not necessarily something I was particularly. Well, into. there was that contradiction between you know <laughs> you're you're fine, you yeah. know you, you yeah. be everything's going to be okay, and then yeah. the the image of you know the very narrow image of what a young woman's body should look like that was mm. in a lot of the exactly. ads and things like that. So that exactly. that would have been something I'm sure that you were aware of. And well, it, it must have conundrum. Yeah, there must have been a weird feeling. Me. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. There must have been a weird feeling that you believe sometimes you're talking to one individual person, but yes. also maybe half a million people at the same time. So it's sort of co quite conflicting, isn't it? It was, and I, I ended up taking a, a slightly formulaic approach um, in, in the sense that I'd, I'd ask myself, what's the, what's the reader actually asking? What's their question? What are they potentially feeling underneath this question? And then what 
in my answer, what is it, is it a place to give messages to half a million readers? Um, so I sort of took that approach, if I could, with all the questions that I answered. Because, you know, if, if I put in a sentence about um, the way to access confidential health care or their, their right to confidential health care, then I felt that that hopefully would benefit that individual reader, but also all the readers. Yes. And reassurance around normality, of course, you know, if, if and a, a common concern might be something like irregular periods. That was a really common question. So being able to reassure anyone out there who also thought they might have irregular periods. So, yes, there was this sense of um, really wanting to talk to this one girl who's written into the magazine, but I also want, you know, the entire readership to perhaps learn something from this. And I think that's why people gravitated towards the seal section or, or the dolly doctor section. Many, many people have told me, oh, that's always the first place I look at. Oh, well, well, that's a credit, yeah. I think, to both yeah. your sensitivity and your knowledge <laughs> and the research you did to answer those questions, especially, I think, in, in the early days. And, Melissa, yeah. now you're writing for the conversation. And, um, yes. Well, I, I can I just yeah. say I discovered you in, with, there with an article about Kegel exercises. Yes, yes that's right. Look, the conversation, as you may know, is, a, is sort of a website um, where all, it covers many, many topics and, and areas and it's written by people with an academic affiliation, so it's evidence-based and they do insist on uh, links to contemporary or, or really relevant research that backs up what you're saying as a writer. And one of their editors decided a few... Um, only a, perhaps a couple of months ago, actually, that they'd like to try and do something for teenagers um, who weren't a particularly large part of their audience or readership. And um, I think they almost sort of saw it as a bit of an answer to the demise of something like Dolly Doctor. Um, but I discovered that myself by accident, I have to say, or sort of in a roundabout way, and, and was very excited because I've written for the conversation over the years a few different articles and so anyway we, we got in touch with each other one of the editors and I and I've written about three answers and they do again have a range of experts contributing um, and of course the, the answers are longer than the typical Dolly Doctor answer They're yes you have the luxury of, of that yeah exactly yes. and mm. you can obviously have links and diagrams and things which, which never could in Dolly Doctor so it's really lovely that the questions are authentic. They're coming in from readers and they do encourage. They'd like to see the number of uh, questions coming in increase. And, you know, it's just a lovely opportunity to once again, you know, speak to this people in this age group and, and hopefully we'll get questions from young men as well. <laughs> yes. Well, Melissa, thank you so much. Uh, Social Professor Melissa Kang from Thank UTS you. come for coming on uh, this morning and uh, I think you're off to a fairly significant event too shortly your daughter's graduation my very youngest my baby is graduating from university so it's a very proud day for me and and that my four children live through the dolly doctor years okay <laughs> we'll have a wonderful wonderful day today and congratulations to your daughter thank you so much lovely to talk to you both Thanks, thank you Melissa. And that was Dr. Melissa Kang. Yes, and uh, yeah, great to hear about Dolly Doctor and yeah, kinds of questions young people are asking. 
My name is Ruby Susan Mapp. My pronouns are they. You're listening and to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binde with Stella, Rosie, and Claudia on. Hello, I'm Liz Wright. Welcome to Are You Looking at Me and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti, who are some of the others. Did you miss our 12 hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. How Much Does Your Love Cost by Thelma Plum. And great song. Um, yeah. So coming up next, we're going to hear some of the sounds and sight. Well, no, we won't get the sights, but we will put a, we'll, we'll put a, a photo. We'll put a photo on our website, though. But some of the sounds of the rally yesterday um, when Melbourne got out to support refugees and change in policy. Um, to stop the inhumane treatment of all the refugees on Manus Island and Nauru. They need to be able to come to Australia where it's safe and to settle here. They have all been deemed to be uh, legitimate refugees. We are not an inhumane society. We need to give them the ability to, to settle here. And that was the marching band. <laughs> and the marching band was fantastic in, in red and, uh, you know, on the back, 100% in the back, you know, say no to racism. And uh, uh, everyone there, I think, was really pleased and determined uh, to make their comments about uh, current refugee policy and uh, let's have a change. So it was a, a great feeling, great to be there. At least a 1,000 people took to the streets, which was yeah. uh, fantastic. Yep. And the you know, Trishnal Palm Sunday, peace and refugees. We'd like to thank Dr. Melissa Slee from Manish University for coming on at 7.15. And at 7.30 we heard from Molly Harris-Olson. Yes, that's right, on free trade and how their organization works and, uh, you know, where you can uh, find a free trade chocolate. There's a couple of uh, logos to look for. 
And, um, yes, and we spoke also to, um, Fiona Armstrong. That was so interesting about the, um, you know, what hospitals can do and what they're doing on climate and health. So really, mm. enjo- well, I enjoyed all our interviews. They're all great. And then, um, of course, we spoke to, um, Dr. Melissa Kang Kang. on Dolly Doctor and, uh, what young people were asking over the years. And following up our show is Women in the Line. Thank you and have a fantastic Easter. Thank you, Judith. It was a fantastic show once again. Thanks to you, Dean, too. See you all next week and enjoy the next few days of hot weather. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.